Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Bob Litterman. And the, when we last spoke, it felt like it felt like a nice cusp that we were um, talking about ideas, where you came from, how you came to them. But having ideas and implementing those ideas is a whole other story. Then And so the things that were – and so I thought it would be a good break, but let's continue the conversation. And the things on my mind are things like um, – well, if we're going to set up incentives, what are the numbers? Are, you know, high, low? And how do we do this? Is it through states? Is it through federal? Is it through local? Is it through um, for-profit companies? Is it, and in what order do we talk to people and things like that? And you don't sound like someone who's, there's a lot of people out there. Here's a great idea. I hope someone does it. So we have the video on and, and you're like, nope, that's not me. <laughs> you sound like someone who's like, I have to make this happen. And uh, I propose we, we get started in, in those areas. Uh, implementation. Do I read you right? Is this something important to you? This not just like as an idea. It, it, yeah, you read me right. And, uh, and I am passionate about it. And I am focused on implementation. Yeah. Uh, and I would say I was very lucky in my career that I started in academia but I was given the opportunity to move to Goldman Sachs at a time when Goldman was a premier uh, private partnership looking to bring quantitative techniques to, uh, to making money. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's what it was all about. And uh, I got to work with some of the best minds on Wall Street and actually to see how it works, but not just how Wall Street works. Wall Street allocates capital, but uh, but to see how a uh, group of individuals, the partners of Goldman Sachs, could work together to solve really interesting and complex problems, uh, to implement things and, and get things done, and uh, and and I was lucky enough at Goldman Sachs to be chosen to be a partner, and and uh, and so I, I experienced. Uh, you know, really smart uh, people working together jointly to solve tough problems. And I and, and many of the other partners from Goldman Sachs have taken that experience and said, let's try and move, uh, you know, the ball forward on climate. And, uh, you know, I happen to be an economist, so I happen to see the essence of the problem is we need to have legislation putting a price on carbon. That's the fundamental essence of it. And that's a political problem. Now, I'm not a political scientist. And, uh, you know, so I've uh, recognized where I have expertise and where I don't, and uh, have started, you know, working with a lot of different groups that, you know, have a lot of expertise that I don't have. Uh, so I sit on the board, for example, of something called Climate Central. And Climate Central is a small, uh, you know, nonprofit that has a lot of expertise on communication and in particular communication about climate and what does it take to change people's attitudes? Uh, you know, and the, and, the, and the simple answer to that, by the way, is repeated messages from trusted messengers. And in this case, basically meteorologists who are, you know, telling people over and over again, by the way, the weather is changing. Uh, it's becoming more chaotic. 
the hundred year flood is happening more often than you think. Uh, and so that's, that's one dimension of it, but there's many dimensions of it. The political dimension of it, you know, requires, uh, it requires support. It requires understanding from the public. So that's, that's part of it, but it also, you know, it requires inside Washington maneuvering. And, uh, so I co-chair a uh, Washington uh, think tank called the Climate Leadership Council. Uh, it was started by a uh, gentleman, Ted Halstead, who sadly uh, passed away a few years ago in a, in a hiking accident. But uh, we've been you know, trying to get uh, Washington, the, the corporate community that lobbies Washington and uh, the academic community, you know, broad coalition uh, together around pricing carbon. And, and and to a large extent, we were very successful, but we have not gotten that legislation over the line. And 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 the real issue there is you need 60 votes in the Senate. And uh, while we have most Democrats, we don't have a lot of support from the Republican Party. So, you know, climate legislation, as everyone knows, is kind of stuck in the political process. Now, there's a number of things to say. One is that this is a global problem. And so we're not just focused on the U.S., although uh, the politics in the U.S. is very important because the U.S. should be a leader on global pricing of carbon, and we're not. Uh, And and the second thing to say is that uh, there are many other approaches beyond simply you know, getting uh, climate, uh, you know, carbon tax passed in the U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, there's ways to create incentives to reduce emissions. And, and we've seen many of them, uh, you know, tried. Uh, there's state, as you mentioned, state approaches. California has a, an emissions trading system. Uh, a number of East Coast states as well uh, have emissions trading system in Washington state just uh, recently imposed an emissions trading system. So that certainly helps, uh, but we need a federal uh, system as well. And then there are other ways uh, to create markets. So for instance, there's something called the voluntary carbon market. It's where corporations can offset their own emissions. Now that market right now is in disarray and it's in disarray because the uh, emissions reductions or uh, removals that are promised from the voluntary carbon market uh, have a number of issues associated with them, uh, many of which are subsumed in the, in the term uh, integrity. They don't have integrity, which basically means we don't have the standards in place and the metrics to actually measure the CO2 moving from the atmosphere into landscapes. And then the other issue is permanence. And there the issue is, well, the carbon may be going into trees, but in California, those trees are drying out and they're burning. And so carbon's going back into the atmosphere. So how permanent are the removals that are going into these landscapes? So those are issues that have really uh, bedeviled this market. But it doesn't mean the market can't be stood up. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I would hope that we get those standards that will create the integrity that will allow corporations to then offset their emissions through permanent 
removals uh, that are you know created through nature-based solutions. And the reason that I'm focusing on nature-based solutions is twofold. One is that uh, that market is already out there. Uh, it's just not working very well, but it can be fixed. And, and the second is it's, it's the cheapest uh, way to scale this carbon dioxide removal that we need. Ultimately, no doubt we're going to need to have industrial uh, scale approaches to uh, direct removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But the cheaper way to do it is to protect nature and encourage nature to use its own power to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, and then to sequester that permanently. So uh, lots of different ways to do that. It's not clear what ultimately will be the cheapest ways to do that. But right now, the cheapest scalable ways to do that are through nature-based approaches. The other benefit, of course, there there are many co-benefits. One is you're protecting nature, and that's important in its own right. Uh, And nature is going to be stressed by climate change. So we need to focus on protecting it as much as we can. And then the second thing is that the good places where you can have more permanent uh, sequestration of carbon are in the tropics. And so uh, this is uh, really scaling up these approaches means investing in uh, solutions in the global south and, and increasing the flow of capital from the global north to the global south, which is something that's also very important in its own right. So these are the, you know, but uh, these things are complicated and uh We have to make sure that in focusing on sequestering carbon, for instance, that we don't, uh, you know, displace indigenous peoples that in many cases live on these uh, landscapes and, uh, you know, that we protect the biodiversity and all the other benefits that nature provides. You said a lot there, and there's a couple aspects of it that are very interesting to me. One is that, let's start with this, that I'm talking to you, but it sounds like you're part of a team and that you're not doing this alone and you don't, you don't even want to do it alone. That, and is it, and also you're, I don't normally think of. No, it's a huge, it's a huge team. I would say most of humanity is on this side. So yes. Well, not all of them are working so hard at things. I mean, there's a lot of people out there saying what I do doesn't matter and they're just throwing up their hands and you're devoting resources. I mean, you're not. You're not someone who's like, you've researched this stuff. You know all the different aspects of it. And um, I mean, you, you don't know all. That's what teams are for. But you're, you've gone into it as much as you can. You're not holding back. And I feel like you're working with people who are not holding back. When you, when you talked about the Goldman Sachs teams that you were on, that when you say you took on challenging problems, you were really, um, it sounds like you guys thrived on that. And this may be bigger and higher stakes than anything before, but it feels like you are finding people who want to dig in are not going to say, oh, I didn't start it. I, oh, maybe the worst will happen after I die or something like that. It sounds like you're like, this is, and I don't think of Goldman, I don't normally think of like Goldman Sachs people are lobbying the government for regulation, for more regulation on business. That's far no. No. <laughs> from it. Um, normally I don't make that association. So that tells me there's more caring and also probably more working on changing culture within Goldman, the communities that Goldman Sachs is in, or in, in is in. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're right, uh, absolutely. 
exactly. And as, as we discussed the other day, you know, Goldman now has hundreds, if not thousands of people working very much in this area of sustainability and reducing carbon and what's it going to mean and where is it going to go and how does it affect the valuation of companies and commodities and, you know, all of that. So uh, the world has really come a long way. And I think we're, you know, very close to this uh, tipping point where we recognize the danger and react to it in the appropriate way. And the appropriate way is to, you know, create these incentives. And that's sort of clear, uh, especially when you're on Wall Street. I think I think we talked about, you know, the, the other way to think about it is when you don't price this risk, uh, then you're in effect subsidizing fossil fuels. And when you think about the right price for it, how much that subsidy is, and, and this is a, an analysis the, that the IMF makes every year, you're talking about trillions of dollars incentivizing investment in polluting assets. And that's just crazy. I mean, it, it, it has to change. And, and we're not going to solve this problem until we change that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm always going to think of it as if we have terrible accounting, we have no idea what's profitable, what's not profitable. We're just doing what the terrible accounting points to. And that's no business would run that way. I mean, can... no, no, it doesn't. And, and you know, uh, one thing that I would say is that, you know, there's been a lot of focus now in the uh, corporate community on disclosure. And uh, disclosure of risk is fundamental. So uh, let's be clear about that. Uh, there's been some, I guess, crazy uh, focus lately on pushing back on climate risk as if it's not real. I mean, it, it's real and it should be disclosed. But that alone does not create the incentives to fix it. That, you know, and so rather than focus on Scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, uh, which is, you know, it, it doesn't put a price on carbon. If you put a price on it, especially right at the outset, you know, at, at the pump at, or mm-hmm. even beyond the at the at the at the well, at the well, yeah. you put a price on it at the well. And then you don't have to worry about disclosure because it's paid for. I think we've talked about that as well. It's just so clear that let's not focus on, uh, you know, voluntary uh, actions to reduce emissions. Let's just create those incentives. And then you don't even have to worry about it. It's, it's built into the price. Uh, so anyway, that it. So how do we get this done? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one, one way to get it done is to just say uh, to the oil companies, you know, you guys are responsible for this product, this waste product, uh, carbon dioxide. And so uh, we're going to create, you, you call it accounting, I'll call it accounting as well. Every, you know, you know how much carbon dioxide is going to come out of the gasoline that you refine and sell uh, to the automobile, you know, take responsibility for that. And that means whatever it's going to cost to pull that CO2 out of the atmosphere permanently you're responsible for that and, and build it into the price and, you know, and let the uh, people who buy your product feel comfortable that it's all built in. I mean, that's kind of one way to do it. And that that would get it done. So, you know, uh, we should all work together on this. 
I, one big advantage I see to that is that it's really hard to hide a well. Like with prohibition, you know, anyone can make gin in a bathtub. I don't know if anyone could, but you, you could. And so people could get around it. And you can't get around – it would be great if someone figured out how to make energy in a bathtub. But, you know, the physics seems pretty tough on that. But it actually would motivate – you know, I mean, right now. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is true, which is that it would actually be very easy to implement this incentive. You just yes. do it the wellhead, pass it on. No one else has to worry about it because everyone. I mean, you do it with coal as well. So utilities that are burning coal, the coal got you know the the price would have to reflect the externality. Uh, but this is so easy to accomplish. We just it just takes the courage to do it. And, you know, every everyone understands this. And so it's like, how do you get the Republicans who are in a, you know, they're in jail, in a jail of their own making, I would say, because, you know, they convinced their most ardent supporters years ago that this was all, you know, uh, not true. Uh, and it's part of, you know, part of the original big lie that the Republicans built for themselves and now, how do they get out of that? Oh, that's right. I got it. I hope he doesn't mind my mentioning his name. But you remember when we met in person, and I mentioned Jerry Taylor. Yes. And I, I got to send you the the. It was an op-ed piece that is too long. It hasn't been edited, but connecting conservative values and libertarian values to sustainability, which to me is obvious, but to many it's anathema. They they can't wrap their heads around it. And I'm trying. I'm constantly trying to think of ways to make it not just appealing, but um, much more than appealing, so that they embrace it enthusiastically. I could imagine, I could see a world in which conservatives and libertarians pass liberals like they're standing still because of the overlap in the values. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, uh, my conversations with Jerry Taylor were very. And they were very risk focused. And, and it's kind of like Jerry, who, as you say, he was one of the, you know, leading climate deniers for many, many years. And he just at some point realized, you know, when you think about it from a risk management perspective, there's just, you know, you have to react. You, you have to recognize the danger. And that means you have to put a price on it. Yeah. So he got that. He changed. And, uh, yeah, I think it's very consistent with those sort of very conservative principles of saying, you know, let's protect this planet and, and nature of which we are a part, you know? Yeah, I would say one of the things that you'll read this if you're up for, if you don't mind my sending it to you, that the, to have a, a government, one rule of government that I think many people agree on is to protect life, liberty, and property. Well, pollution destroys life, liberty, and property, and also to provide a level playing field for in order that businesses can can thrive and allocate resources to the problem solvers to solve problems. But if we don't have a level, I mean, you show me a oil producing country that has not been infiltrated at the highest levels uh, to um, let's say make a non-level playing field. I don't. It doesn't exist. And then we have all these crazy incentives to, to get government larger and larger and larger based on selling more and more f fossil fuels and pollution. And it seems like these are the opposite of what to, 
if how can we have a government that protects my right to destroy your life, liberty, and property? It doesn't make sense at any price. No, it, it doesn't. Uh, you know, in some sense, I think we get the best government money can buy. And, you know, that's been true for a long time. And you get these businesses and especially, you know, big business lobbies that say, hey, uh, we need this. And that's what's been going on with fossil fuels for decades. Uh, yeah. So they've, they've had more or less the ability to steer government policy to support their industry. And, uh, you know, that has been good for them, not so good for the rest of us. So we've got to change that. And I think, you know, it's going to happen now because at this point in time, everyone recognizes that we have to go to a low carbon economy, including the shareholders of the oil companies. And so, you know, they're asking their management, how are you going to make that transition? Even the oil companies. Now, there may be disagreement about how rapid that tr transition is going to be. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we would all agree on that, but we all agree we have to make the transition. And I would just say from a risk management perspective, we have to make it as quickly as possible. We have to be realistic about the fact that we don't know how much time we have. And that's the fundamental problem. It's a risk management problem. And just as Jerry Taylor saw the reality of that and the fact that it means, yeah, we've got to create the appropriate incentives to move there rapidly. Uh, you know, we, one can have a disagreement about how rapidly. And that really is a question of what's the right price for carbon emissions. And I would say, well, you know, you have to worry about not only expected damages, but you have to worry about the fact that we don't know a lot about the actual risks down the road, you know, we're talking about an experiment that's going to have very significant impacts on the planetary scale for decades, perhaps, in fact, most likely for hundreds of years. And our, you know, our descendants in the planet and all of nature is going to have to live with that. We should be slamming on the brakes. I mean, so yeah, how do we get that done? And how do we get it done globally? Uh, and how do we make sure that the U.S. is in a leadership position? These are, you know, these are tough problems that a lot of people are working on. And you know, I'm trying to do the best I can to help as well. And uh, I would say there's one other thing that's very significant and important to recognize. And that is that the flow of capital, which we need, we're talking about ultimately, how do we get the flow of capital moving? And I've been focusing on incentives and pricing carbon. But to be a little bit more um, precise, what you need is the expectation that there will be pricing of emissions in the future. If I'm building capital today or I'm investing in capital today that's going to be operating for the next 30 years, then I need to know what's the incentive over that 30-year life or the 50-year life. You know, I'm building a power plant or if I'm building an airplane that's going to be flying for 50 years, that's how I've got to think about it. And so if we can make uh, changes in expectations of these incentives in the future, that's going to have an impact on the flow of capital today. And sometimes those expectations are easier 
to operate on maybe than the current, you know, incentive. In um, in commodity markets, you know, you're when you're drilling uh, a deep sea oil well, it's not the current price of oil that you're worried about. It's the price of oil over the life of that investment, which is probably decades. And similarly here, as we as, as the economy, as 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 entrepreneurs and investors think about investing in capital, they are thinking not only about the current incentives to reduce emissions, but also the incentives in the future. And to the extent that we've all sort of committed to net zero and recognize that we're going to get to net zero, implicit in that scenario is that there will be prices on emissions, incentives to reduce emissions, and that they'll get in place. And uh, so, I, you know, I think we can operate on those expectations as well as on the current uh, prices of emissions. There's some challenges that uh, that most people see, but I one of a lot of a lot of my personal work is to realize that these aren't such big challenges as people think, or rather, there are more opportunities. But you're talking a lot about carbon and taxing carbon. Uh, I don't know how much you've looked into the numbers on if we were to move our grid from burning coal to um, what other people call renewables. There's solar and wind are renewable energy sources, but the materials to make them are not renewable. And they have to be replaced like every 15, 20 years. And then there's some things that I don't know. I'm not aware of anyone knowing a way to get around using diesel for, which would be long, long haul trucks, uh, container ships, airplanes. And before I started my personal action, which was also a matter of integrity, I thought life would end without a lot of things. But then I find that that's not the case. I can, I can not only get by with a lot less, I look back at how I was before and it's like, it reminds me of when I was a kid in school, there were classmates who were a bit spoiled and I don't know if they knew they were spoiled, but if you ask them, would you like your parents to say no to you sometimes? They would say, no, I, of course not. I want, I want everything whenever I want it. And everyone knew that they would be a better person. And I think after they got told no a few times, they'd probably find themselves a better person. But while they're not being told no, they're going to have tantrums and kick and scream and say, don't take anything away from me. The more that I've moved more towards sustainability myself, and I have to make clear, me, personal action is totally different than me leading. That's another thing. But I can't lead if I don't have integrity and credibility. So, but a lot of people can't imagine, a lot of people's view is uh, if we can't power these things, it's the Stone Age. And there's like this binary thing or some post-apocalyptic Mad Max type situation that I don't see happening. I, well, we could if we if we just blindly. So, I, yeah, I mean, if we only do carbon, I feel like. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Let me react to that, because, uh, you know, we can't have we can't solve this with personal action. You, if, you know, if you want to reduce your emissions. Uh, you, you know, ultimately, uh, are you going to have, uh, one set of accounts? Yeah. I, I want to stop you. I'm not saying personal action. I, what I am saying is if, if someone says something is absolutely impossible, you only need one counterexample to show that that's not absolutely impossible. And, uh, I don't believe you can lead someone else to live by values that you don't live by yourself or if you live the opposite of. So, the point of my bringing up the personal action is not to say 
let's all act personally. Although our lives will be better if we do. And if, but I know that from having acted that way, that I'm a bit less spoiled than I was before. And I see how spoiled we are and we could move away from that. But my point is just, we don't need, I, I think a lot of people think if we don't have a certain amount of infrastructure, a certain size grid, then we're going to collapse. And I think if we do, we're going to collapse. But if we, if we keep growing too big and we keep polluting, uh, that's a big problem. But a lot of people feel like if we don't keep powering things as much as we have been, then everything's going to fall apart. Yeah, well, you know, how can I react to that? As an economist, I know that if we put incentives in the right direction, which is to say reducing emissions, we don't have to worry about it from a personal basis. It's no longer something that is part of my concern because it's all built into the price. And so you you, you say, well, but the the steel for the windmills is not clean. But if we have globally appropriate incentives to reduce emissions, then that steel will appropriately be produced by clean methods. And when I say appropriately, I mean, it's all about prices and it's all about doing things efficiently. This is not about reducing consumption. It's not about people making their own decisions to reduce their pollution. This is about embedding it in the prices and then none of us have to worry about it. It's just going to take care of itself. Just like every other allocation problem, the fundamental problem is not having those incentives in place. And when you solve that problem, you don't worry about it. It's not about your own ethics. Now, not having the price in place reflects a terrible, uh, a terrible failure of ethics. It's putting ourselves in our short-term, you know, uh, benefit ahead of, you know, generations that are going to follow us. And it's so easy for us to change. It's so obvious how we can change. Not to do it is terribly unethical. But that's different than what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is, what, what does it sound like I was talking about? I don't know how it, hurt, how it sounded to you. Oh, well, it sounded to me like you were talking about how do I make decisions in my own life uh, to reduce my impact on uh, climate? Yeah, okay. Yeah. What I'm saying is if we, if we only tax carbon, then we will start um, drilling for lots of other things and deforestating. Defor- I, don't, I don't know if I just made up a verb there, but, you know, it, chopping down forests and polluting in lots of other ways. And I presume that you also mean that we'd have to put taxes in on everything else as well, appropriately everywhere, not just one thing, but if I'm making... Um, externality, when you say everything, externalities. I mean, you know, economists talk about externalities and yes, yes, climate is an externality. It, the risk of the damage to future generations is the externality of climate. And there's lots of other externalities. So let's say plastic in the ocean. Right now, plastic is made from oil. But if we made plastic out of plants, but it still broke down over a thousand years and stayed in the ocean, we'd have to 
price that into making the plastic in the first place if we don't have a way of cleaning it up and it's you know it messes up endocrine systems and kills wildlife and things like that so that would mean that bioplastics would have to be appropriately priced and um i mean pick your thing if it's cobalt or whatever all the prices everything would have to be priced like that right and, yeah everything okay so all the can i retroactively understand all the times you said carbon you're really talking about externalities yeah, it's one example of an extra Yes. And you also talked about net zero. And you talked about um, nature-based solutions. Many. What if it turns out that many of them can't be permanent longer? We, there's no way we can know that they're permanent longer than a few centuries. And that it turns out that whatever we do, our mechanical methods of, of sequestration, what if they never become economical? then net zero would have to mean zero. Well, I mean, we know how to remove carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We know how to do it permanently. So this can be done. It's a question of what's the price. And, you know, uh, if you're talking about direct air capture today and permanent sequestration in rock underground for thousands of years, that's being done in Iceland today. And it's very, very expensive, but it's being done. Yeah. It can be done. So are there cheaper ways to do it? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, and in fact, uh, my argument is that the nature-based approach is pulling it into landscapes and protecting nature and all those other good things is actually probably the cheapest way to do it at scale. Now, can we then sequester that carbon permanently? And how much is that going to cost? That's unknown, uh, I would say, but it certainly helps to sequester it for you know thirty years or fifty years. And what we really should be doing is uh, taking a down payment on the cost of doing whatever needs to be done to make it permanent. Uh, you know, at that point in time, and so that's that's kind of like say a, a fund. So the sequestering of carbon, let's say, in the forest is really not that expensive. Uh, but when you pay for ultimately permanent sequestration, yeah, it'll be a little more, but it's still going to be a lot cheaper than direct air capture going on in Iceland right now. So if you know about permanent solutions that are cheaper than Iceland, I'd love to know where it's coming from, because I'm not aware of anything on the horizon that shows that we could really sequester something permanently at anything on a, on a scale that that would be reasonable for us. Now, I, I do believe in human ingenuity. I just haven't come across the research myself yet that says that something that we, that it could really be permanent. Well, well, you're you're a little bit, yeah. No, it's it's not being done. You know at scale right now. You're absolutely right about that. And maybe I'm just more optimistic than you about the ability to do it. But let's say that's unknown. Neither knows the answer to that. And so uh, that just makes the problem that much worse. It's just one more source of uncertainty, which means that the price should be that much higher today. That's how an economist looks at that. You got to be prepared for the worst case scenario. And part of the worst case scenario is, as you say, there's no inexpensive way to pull that out of the atmosphere. Okay. That's a worst case. And that just means we have to spend more and we should spend it sooner. We should start 
today because that ton of carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere today is that much harder than I thought it was going to be to pull out in the future. I mean, it, it's it, it's a matter of neither of us know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to having to become or getting to become much more sustainable fast. And well, I'm hopeful that recognizing the answer on carbon will make it very clear. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of like, okay, we had the COVID, uh, you know, global pandemic. And hopefully, you know, there were some lessons there that, you know, things happen that we haven't, ha we haven't seen before that we have to be prepared for it. And, and another lesson is that time is not on our side. You know, had we seen that coming a little bit better and been better prepared for it and reacted sooner, maybe it wouldn't have been a global pandemic that killed, you know, millions of people, but it got out of control. And similarly with climate change, it could get out of control. We really have to worry about those tipping points that we don't know where they are. You know, you think about, uh, you know, the warming of the oceans and what that's doing to ice in Greenland and in Antarctica. And it's melting it. And it may be that there's so much uh, uh, heat in the oceans already that uh, those, you know, the ice cap in, in Greenland is, is inevitably going to melt. And that's, you know, feet. That's many feet. If, if the whole thing is gone, it's 26 feet or something like that of sea level rise globally. And in any case, uh, it's melting at a, you know, faster and faster rate so that sea level rise, which has been measured in inches so far, is going to be measured in feet, you know, within this century. Uh, so this is just uh, the reality that, you know, we have to live with. And we have to uh, act as quickly as we can uh, to slow down those impacts that may be out of control already. When you talk about the solution being simple, I think what you mean is that with the appropriate taxes or, or, or accounting, the market will allocate resources effectively. There's the non-simple aspect is the people who disagree who have the votes in in Senate and the White House at different times. Um, why do people resist? Why do people push back? Well, you know, let's go back uh, a decade ago. And, uh, you know, if you're an oil company and you see that, uh, you know, a rapid transition to low carbon is not going to increase the demand for your product. In fact, it's going to have a devastating impact on the demand for your product. Then you're going to say, it's not in the interest of my shareholders to move quickly. And to the extent that you have influence on politicians, you're going to say, you know, not so quick here. Uh, and that's what's been going on. Uh, and now that, you know, is, is moving the other direction. I don't think the oil companies have been telling politicians for many years not to address this problem. In fact, I think they're trying to figure out how do we address this problem? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Rex Tillerson, who is the CEO at uh, Exxon years ago, said, hey, we've got this under control. 
we're going to engineer this. And I guess what he was referring to was removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I'm not sure what he had in mind, but in any case, that's where we have to go. And I think everyone knows it now. Uh, but as I say, Republicans have kind of put themselves in jail and they don't see a way out. Many of them would love to get out of jail. It's just that they know that those, uh, you know, Republican primary voters are not going to support someone who says we have to address climate change. So they they don't talk about it. It's kind of sad. Have you, have you worked on how to get them a get a jail free card or how to give them a way out, how to allow them to save face or to be, because that, that human aspect of it seems like a big, if, if, if they changed, that would be, that would, there's, I mean, that's a major part of the solution. We are working on it at the climate leadership council. We have stood up something called the center for carbon and trade. And the idea is to uh, basically say, look, U.S. Uh, manufacturing is a lot cleaner than manufacturing, particularly in China. And China right now is a favorite target of the Republicans. So if you can say, look, uh, if we put a carbon border adjustment mechanism in place, a tariff on dirty carbon coming into this country, that's going to benefit U.S. manufacturers, particularly in steel and you know, these these uh, areas where we can make things much cleaner than foreign competition. And, you know, a, a bunch of Republicans love that. And so right now in Congress, you have uh, both Republicans and Democrats working on language to, in you know, to institute a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Europe already has instituted a carbon border, border adjustment mechanism. It, it won't go into place for, I think, two more years, but it's been uh, the legislation has been passed. Now, uh, this border carbon adjustment mechanism does not have a carbon tax embedded in it necessarily, but uh, uh, that's one thing that could happen. And, uh, you know, if you're going to say that we're going to put a tariff on dirty products coming into the country, uh, we better make sure that we have clean products here and we ought to have the incentives in place to make sure that that's the case. So you never know what might be embedded in a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And at the uh, Climate Leadership Council, we're, we're very focused on that. All right. I, I looked at scans for a second because if we have to have something, I think you, when you said we better make sure we have something here first, I think the best way to get something here first is to implement that. Like We don't have to wait for something here to make that happen. Uh, in, in including in a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a tax on carbon. Is that what you're saying? You, I understood you say before we put on a carbon border adjustment mechanism, we better make sure that we have something here to pick up the slack. But I think if we wait for to have, how can we have something here if we don't have the mechanism first? I think we don't have to wait for something to exist here to put that mechanism in place. Well, yeah, I mean, when we talk about the mechanism, it, we're talking about incentives, and incentives can come in many forms. So, for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a mechanism in place to differentiate between uh, the methane that's, uh, you know, content coming from uh, oil and gas producers. If there's more methane than other, if you're, you know, if you have more methane than average, you have to pay 
And if you have less methane than average, I guess you get, uh, you get paid. And so in effect, you've created an incentive to reduce your methane. And uh, a similar thing could be done with respect to carbon in a border carbon adjustment mechanism. I guess that's what I'm saying. And if you put a border carbon adjustment mechanism in place where you're saying, I'm going to put a tariff on dirty imports, I guess the question is, how do you measure those import, you know, carbon content? It get, it, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And, uh, and to the extent that there are, uh, you know, taxes, for instance, China, in China, there is a federal uh, emissions trading system with a very low price. But, okay, when you put this border carbon adjustment mechanism on, are you going to take that into account? Uh, and, you know, so do you, do you tax the untaxed carbon or do you try and tax the taxed carbon? That doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm also, every time you say carbon, I keep thinking, why not say externality? I, I think one might say, first, let's solve it with carbon, then use what we solve there to the next thing and the next thing, the next thing. Although to me, it seems, why not just take care of it all in one fell swoop? Well, it's hard to measure carbon alone. And then when we talk about, okay, uh, let's worry about biodiversity. What does that mean? How are you going to put a price on biodiversity? I'm not saying it can't be done, but these things are hard. And so one of the basic problems with carbon is we don't have good measurement of the flow of carbon from the atmosphere into landscapes. That problem has to be solved, but that's a lot easier than uh, putting a price on biodiversity, uh, you know, maybe clean water. I agree with you. Let's put a price on clean water. Uh, we can probably measure that pretty well. But the price would be on the pollution that would go into the clean water. Yeah, it would be on, well, certainly pollution going into clean water, but also recognizing when a, you know, uh, a forested area provides a source of clean water, that that's something valuable and we should protect it. Yeah, so I'm wondering why not just why not talk about an externality pricing instead of carbon alone? Because if we only solve one, no, I'm happy. I'm happy to. <laughs> okay, so you, you, it's just um, we're not disagreeing. Okay, I, I guess this is a question for the uh, the folks in communications to say. Yeah, the PR people. Yeah, yeah. What works best? And, you know, make polluters pay is <laughs> what I'm told is the phrase that works the best. Okay. Um, I'm curious if you want to do the, the Spodic method that I talked about before. Uh, it's about 20 minutes. So we're, um, it's up to you if we, if you want to do it or not. Are you, do you want to give a shot? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, see, you're talking a lot about incentives. And when we met, when I talked about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation, it felt like you were just, no, the, the set up the incentives and things will take care of themselves. And to me, there's a big focus. My, my focus is on people's intrinsic motivations that I think right now are um, leadership in general is a lot about beliefs and role models and stories and images that are independent of extrinsic or external incentives that I don't think we're tapping into. And I think we could tap into these things. I think it's in, otherwise I think we're pushing against a lot of resistance in people. Like there's a lot of people who look at the information, they know scientists, for example, 
they look at the data, they know the numbers, they know the risks, they know as everything, and they aren't acting, which could be um, they themselves know the issues. And it's very easy for me to say, well, look at the scientists. They know the problems and they're not changing their behavior, either as individuals or as the entire field. So if they're not changing, why should I change? Whereas great leaders, uh, Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, they, they, they inspired people. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not a great leader. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm an economist, so uh, I don't take it as my role is to be the inspirational leader that gets people moving like uh, Mandela. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about how do we get Congress to change? And I think, you know, that's something that happens mostly behind the scenes. And, um, and, and the scientists play an important role here because certainly we have to all understand the science and the science tells us where to go. Now, to me, the economics is part of the science. It's, you know, uh, we have to get capital flowing into building the low carbon economy. That's what the science tells us. And the economics tells us how do we get that capital flowing? And the answer is we create those expectations that's going to be profitable. And then you have individuals acting in their own best interest and in the interest of society by investing in the capital that will create that low carbon economy. And that low carbon economy is what we need. So when you see it all that way, it's, it's like, okay, how do we get those incentives in place? And, or we can even step a step behind that and say, how do we get those expectations that the incentives will be in place when I need them to be in place to make this capital profitable? And I think we are creating those expectations. Uh, and so we're getting closer and closer, uh, but we're not there yet. And, uh, and so one of the things I'm focused on, very focused on, is just uh, creating understanding of and awareness of the fact that incentives to reduce emissions now are very far from where they should be and very diverse across the world, very strong in Europe, very weak in the United States and China and India, which are the three economies that are most important. And then, you know, they go in the wrong direction in the Middle East, in Venezuela, in Russia. You know, this cannot stand. This, when people see this and understand this, they're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, you know, unfortunately, I would say right now, we live in a world where there are bigger problems, sadly, but there are really big problems out there. And uh, so, you know, we're worrying about nuclear war and, and, and ongoing land war in Ukraine. And so, uh, you know. Yeah, I feel like as a society, we're doing, I think it was from, Eisenhower, that matrix of quadrant two, we're like, we're, we're focused on urgent, urgent, important. And it's hard not to focus on urgent, important, but the non-urgent, important ones such as this is like, if we don't put this on the front burner, then it's, I mean, for generations, we've been saying, this is very, very important. We'll get to it next. Yes. Yes. And always something 
there's always something that we can put a little just before. Right, right, right. No, you're absolutely right. And hope that someone else is going to address this difficult problem. Uh, but the problem is this is really wicked because it requires global coordination. And, uh, you know, and, and it, when you look at it from a risk management perspective, that's when you say, whoa, whoa, this is urgent. <laughs> Wake up. Hello. We got to, you know, but, uh, you know, we don't have a global risk management framework that's up to the task. The UN is trying uh, and not very successfully. Uh, you know, and so there's a lot of focus on moving the UN forward, but not a lot of optimism that that's going to be successful, certainly not at the next COP. And, uh, and part of that problem is the rest of the world is looking to the U.S. for leadership. Yeah, I, you were saying we could lead, and I think we are leading in the opposite direction. Sadly, many are following us not taxing, not putting these incentives in. So we are, I don't think we're just passively not leading. I think that we're actively going opposite. And it's. I totally agree with you. Totally agree. <laughs> and again, it goes back to Republicans in Congress. You know, what can I say? Uh, you know, how do we get them to uh, recognize reality when. They know that to do so will mean that they'll lose their job. Yeah, that's why I'm going to send you that document. And I hope you get to read it because I, I want to create a case where they – I think they could see – there's a way to get them to move faster and to say we can leapfrog the Democrats and make this our issue based on our principles of, say, a small government protecting life, liberty, and property, creating a playing field that allocates resources to the best problem solvers. And which is not what the Democrats are saying, but the outcome, if the outcome is that they work together on this issue, because I would, you know, I just see, I envision a world, and this is not my big dream, but part of it is that we look to regulations in this area, like we look at traffic regulations. Ever in the world, we know that the red light means stop. Ever in the world, we know that you know, every now and then someone will go through a red light, but they know that it's, there could be a child that they didn't see. And, you know, across this country, when someone's stuck at a red light and they could cross a double yellow line to go the other direction where there's no cars, they don't do it. And they don't sit in the car saying, some bureaucrat in Washington is keeping no. me from my freedom to go over there. Nor do they say, oh, this is, uh, how to go the other way would be, this is an unjust thing thing that privileges one group over another group. They don't say that either. They just say, no, we don't want kids to get hit by cars. We don't want, we all would get slower if we all went wherever we wanted all the time. And yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I agree with you. We should just be in a world where everyone understands that, first of all, we're temporarily here and, you know, people are going to come after us. We have to live in a sustainable world. And, and moreover, that we're part of nature. We're not separate from nature. And, you know, you've got to respect that. You know, we re just like we respect each other as human beings, we have to respect nature of which we are a part. Yeah. And that should just be natural. We should all grow up with that. And instead, we all grow up with the idea that, I don't know, land is something we can own and do with what we want. And, and that's just not the case. We have certain responsibilities 
to you know nature and to the future uh, of humanity, which is part of nature. And it's not a burden to. It's not like that's not messing up messing up a life that we that's like better. Like, yeah. darn, we have to care for these trees. It would be better if we didn't have these trees, and we could just no. It's 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 great. No, it's part of nature. You've got DNA too, just like the tree. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say, you know, you got to focus on how much we have in common with all of nature. We're all part of this grand experiment. And, you know, we've got to learn to respect it. I totally agree with you. If that's what you're saying, totally get it. Yeah. It's, I think people envision a worse life and it's not. I think we will, when we, make the transition that you're talking about, we will look back and say, why did we wait so long? Why yeah. did we think it was going to be? Yeah, like, I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. The damage that has been done in the last 30 years, this is not, you know, that's what, and like next year, it's going to be the worst year in terms of damage. It's yeah. the most pollution of those 30 years, right? This has got to stop. It's got to stop immediately. Yes, this might be a good place to wrap because uh, yeah. it's, a, it's I, what you're saying is like, I hope that resonates with people. Um, and that it's coming from a Goldman Sachs person. I, I guess it's been a while since you've been a Goldman Sachs person, but I feel like it's still a part of you. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't cover that's worth covering? Um, well, you know, you asked me the other day about, uh, you know, why did I get so passionate about this? And yeah, uh, there is a story that I sometimes tell, and I could tell you, it it's, uh, takes a few minutes, but if you're interested, I'd be happy to tell it. I'm at the edge of my seat. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, back when I was a graduate student at Minnesota, and I was being educated about economics, uh, and it was, it was a great education, but it sometimes was a little bit painful. And, and one time when it was painful was when I was taking a, a prelim, you know, these are the tests that everyone has to take. And there's a macro prelim and a micro prelim. And I was kind of a macro student focusing on the macro economy and how it works and so on. But this was the micro prelim all about, you know, uh, microeconomics, prices and wages and how markets work and all that. And, and uh, so the question, and it was a, an essay question that was 25% of the total, uh, you know, test. Mm -hmm. Or some choices, but the one I chose to answer said, defend a policy of smoothing oil prices. And I thought, okay, I know I can, I can imagine how that's going to work. So I thought of an economy and their shocks. And this is back in the day when there was, uh, you know, the strategic petroleum reserve had just been built. And the idea was, okay, when there's an oil shock, uh, we should let oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve to, you know, buffer that shock. And, and when times are, you know, there's less demand and there's excess oil, then we should uh, pull it in. And so I, I created an economy with all these shocks and, uh, and, and uh, you know, a utility function that penalized squared changes in oil prices, the volatility of oil. So then, you know, you could uh, write down a dynamic economy and an optimal control. And I don't know if this all makes sense, but it's mathematical optimization. And you could, uh, you know, optimize this economy so that it has less volatility of oil prices. So I thought I nailed that. Uh, I got the test back. I got zero 
<laughs> on that. <laughs> I was like, what? And zero out of 20, you know, 25, uh, that meant I flunked the test. Mm-hmm. I had to take it over again. And these were tests that you studied for, you know, for months. And so there was a lot of pain <laughs> and scar tissue involved. And I went in and I complained. I said, zero, how could you say zero? What, what, what are you looking for here? And uh, the answer, he said, full credit was, there is no defense. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean there's no defense? He says, well, you can't put uh, prices into a utility function. That's, you know, simple error. What goes into utility functions are, you know, goods and services. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. So that, it turns out, is a lot of uh, scar tissue in the brain. And so then when you say, okay, where are we in terms of the price of emissions today, which is kind of zero, and where is the appropriate price? And it's, uh, you know, call it $200 a ton. Uh, And then you ask the question, well, what's the appropriate path to get there? And the answer is you don't smooth it. You don't go up slowly. You Mm -hmm. go up immediately. And and so to me, that was kind of obvious. And uh, it's kind of scar tissue that's now deeply embedded in the brain. But you see, that's kind of the fundamental uh, question that society is is grappling with today is how quickly do we move to a net zero economy? And uh, the answer is, well, we should be pricing it where it is appropriate immediately. Because And why is that? It's because uh, how do you argue that we shouldn't put appropriate incentives in place? You know, on what basis? Anyway, so that, you see. Well, reflecting on that, I can't help but think you're describing a scar tissue, but I feel like they gave you partly a trick question, but they also wanted you to, to learn a lesson. And that lesson, you learned it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you passed, you got your PhD. So you did learn, you did learn your lesson and now you're applying it. Yeah. It, it almost feels like maybe the professor actually, or the, the prelim committee, got like did their job they did it well they did it well and you ask well, why am i more passionate than maybe the next guy it's because they did a good job on my brain and i say whoa this is really bad the price should be up there immediately not over the next 10 years well thank you very much for sharing all of this including this uh challenging experience that you had but uh it's kind of an, an interesting origin story and I'll send you that document and and I hope to keep in touch. Sure. But thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 